in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello and welcome to the Retro Movie Roundtable. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, John Flack. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. And you know why I'm doing great? Because we have... Why are you doing great? I, I'm doing great because we have a great host today. One of my best friends, and one of your best friends, the great Chad Robinson is here. And horror movie aficionado, I might add. Chad, how are you? Hi, everybody. That's some pressure. Thanks, Russell. Hey, he, set the, he set the bar for you. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> we know we know with it being October, we had to call in the big guns for, uh, or the big knives, or uh, whatever, ha- what have you, big sickles and other implements of horror destruction. Excellent. Yeah, we had, we, we had to call in the experts here. Um, not the Ghostbusters, but Chad. So... Before we get kicked off into the actual movie, let's get to know Chad just a little bit here. Answer a couple questions for you. Chad, if you could remake any movie, what would you remake? Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Wow, okay, okay. I, so, so you weren't happy with it? I was not. Uh, make Jar Jar Binks the bad guy. Make Anakin a teenager. Just, just fix it. So, so a lot of changes. <laughs> Everything. Everything. What about, uh, I, I kind of thought your change might be just not making it. Yeah, that too. We can remake it as just nothing. Just cue a new hope again. That's just fine. <laughs> um, the What is your favorite uh, date movie memory? So my wife and I like very, very different movies. She's more of a romantic comedy person or a Disney person. I'm more of a slasher horror movie person. And to compromise one year, we decided to do a double feature. She wanted to see Cinderella, the live action. Uh, That was okay. And I wanted to see It Follows. That gave her nightmares. So I kind of won out on that date movie. So uh, did you have nightmares? She woke me up in the middle of the night telling me a man was standing in the doorway and so she promptly went back to sleep when I said there's no one there. But I was up for like the next six or so hours. Six uh, hours? Off of pure adrenaline. I mean, your wife wakes you up in the middle of the night saying... Oh, so it wasn't, it wasn't just like a little nudge? No, no. It was terror-induced. This guy's going to kill us and there's no one there. It freaks you out. Like when the little kids in horror movies say there's a monster in the room. You can't see it, but they can. Yeah, it was that. <laughs> um, so... I know you're a big Halloween fan. What are some of your Halloween movie-watching traditions? I try every year to watch a movie for every day in October. So I'm trying to hit 31. Right now I'm keeping pace. Uh, Mostly trying to get new movies in, but some rewatches. Russell, we've started a uh, kind of a mini-marathon. I like showing you some of my favorites and 
maybe hit a new one or two if we can. Uh, but really, I just try and cover as much ground as I can over October. But I always have to hit up Halloween, Nightmare Before Christmas, and Gremlins. Those are my go-tos. Mm, yeah. Uh, so last year we did, as Chad mentioned, we've been doing this probably for about four or five years, maybe, uh, where we do a triple feature. And uh, usually one is not on the hard, scary side necessarily because, uh, you know, as, as mentioned uh uh, Sarah is not as big of a fan of the horror movies, nope. and she's usually present for at least one of them. So, um, what did we do last year? We did Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which is an excellent comedy. He I had to it. make me watch it, and I loved it. I don't like. I don't know. The title just didn't jump out at me. Yeah, it's not not a great title, but man, that movie's worth it. It's a lot of fun. I, I think the title makes sense after you've seen the movie. It does. I, I do have to protest the bad frat guy being named Chad. I, I don't know where that's coming from. I mean, come on. It's a meme. I didn't know this until recently. Oh, it's yeah. It's kind of like a popular thing. Like that, uh, because when I mentioned your name the first time that down here in North Carolina, people were just like, Chad is like, is he a frat guy? I was like, no. No, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> no, they won't let him in frats. <laughs> uh, and the other two? Uh, the Babysitter, which I think was a Netflix exclusive. Original. Yeah. Uh, that was very, very good. Uh, the Babysitter is kind of a satirical movie where she is leading a cult. And they play on a lot of horror movie tropes. The characters are just ridiculous stereotypes. It's a lot of fun. It's a comedy. It's, it's funny. Yeah. Yep. And then... The new Friday the 13th, well, new in 2009, which in my opinion is the best version of Friday the 13th. I second that opinion, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not a lover of the first Friday the 13th movie, and uh, this made some improvements, which yeah. isn't, in my opinion, hard to do, and I'm probably uh, hurting some people's feelings by saying that. But um, Interesting. I haven't even seen it. I recommend it. It's good. Danielle Panabaker who is in Flash right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she plays Killer Frost, and uh, she is also in Piranha 3 D, which, despite the ridiculous name, is actually a fun movie. Yeah, so um, one last one. Have you seen any movies? What's the last movie you saw? So the last movie I saw is not something that I would recommend to anyone. It was White Zombie. It starred Bella Lugosi back in the 1930s. It's considered probably the first zombie movie. They're very different than Romero zombies. They're basically just mindless slaves. It's not very scary or intimidating. It's just long and boring. I didn't realize that Romero didn't actually come up with the zombie somehow. I didn't. I, did, I, I perhaps gave him credit for inventing the zombie. So he came up with the brain-eating trope that yeah, we have today the modern zombie yeah okay. a good version all right that's that's fair so let's get into today's movie uh today we're going to do john carpenter's halloween this came out in 1978 it had a budget a tiny little budget of three hundred thousand dollars uh it's opening weekend it made uh eight million dollars so pretty profitable it went on to gross 47 million dollars domestic uh, it placed eighth in the box office on the year, which is pretty strong for a horror movie. Uh, placing ahead of it was Hooper, and placing behind it, it was Convoy. 
Uh, IMDb rating gives us 7.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes critics meter gives us 93%, a very strong critics meter, and then an audience score of 83%. Um, I'm not sure why there's that's a 10 that's a 10% swing there. That's a large difference. Uh, and then Ebert actually loved this one as well. Uh, so this movie is is championed as being highly original and highly influential. And it spawned a series of 11 movies uh, to come in the franchise, counting some remakes um, and sequels. So some are better than others. So uh, let's ask uh, Chad, have you seen Halloween before? I think you said you had. Of uh, course. When yeah. was the first time you saw it? And um, how did you feel about it? And how did you feel coming into it this time? Oddly enough, the first time I saw Halloween was at a church lock-in. Uh, there there wasn't much churchy things going on in the lock-in, but they did show a lot of horror movies. This was really the movie that kick-started my love of horror movies. I'd seen The Howling 3 before. That's not great, but it was, it was still, you know, as a little kid, you're seeing a scary movie. It's fun. Halloween just stuck with me. Just the music, the imagery. I loved everything about it, and I just had to get more... More and more horror movies. Hmm. Interesting. So how old were you at this lock-in? Probably 11 or 12. Okay. Yeah. How about you, John? Well, uh, when I first saw it, I was probably about the same age Chad was. I was probably about 11 or so. Uh, I caught it on TV, so it was definitely edited. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I haven't seen it in quite some time. And honestly, as I grew older... Uh, all of the older Halloween movies all became kind of a jumble with the exception of Halloween 3 because that was just a different one. Uh, and so I kind of forgot what, specifically like which characters were in which film except for our main characters, that is. Um, I really liked it. But then, you know, as time goes on, it's one of the most referenced horror movies I, I can think of, honestly. I mean, there's lots of great ones out there, but... I mean, the the opening song, the theme song alone is, is everywhere. Um, so I, I actually, I hadn't seen it in a while, as I mentioned. So I was kind of excited to revisit it. And uh, I actually went out and made sure to purchase this one because I didn't have it. I figured it would be a good addition. I uh, got the 35th anniversary Blu-ray adaption. Um, and it looks really nice. And the sound looked a lot better, uh, The converting the mono recording trying to get it over to stereo um and i made sure to watch it in the dark and you know at nighttime uh and i was not disappointed tried to come in with a clear mind and i was happy i did um like john and chad here i watched this one i got to it a little bit later than they did i was probably 13 or 14 i'm gonna say 13 and uh, this really was my first sit down through a horror movie. I watched it on TV. Uh, it was I was home alone, and I just watched it on TV, and I somehow got hooked. I came in at the beginning, and I was like, I don't watch horror movies. I don't even like the idea of being scared from a movie. And um, somehow I picked the right one to walk walk in on and give the whole genre a chance. So uh, it scared me a lot. Um, but I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the thrill. And so it stuck with me. Uh, so I didn't really become a horror junkie at all 
And then I, once my wife Mary and I started to simultaneously get into them together in college, we came back and revisited the entire Halloween series, um, uh, starting at the beginning and going all the way through the end. Uh, that took us up till through the first Rob Zombie movie. I actually hadn't seen the second Rob Zombie movie yet. Um, Don't. Uh, I'll probably do it just to complete as a completionist, but um, it, yeah, it's. Uh, like I said, there's varying degrees of success through the series, but I've, I enjoyed it and I knew I loved it. And so coming back into this, I was excited. I don't buy tons of movies, but I bought this one. Unlike um, John, I probably made a bad investment and I bought a DVD, um, and it was cheap. So it was probably cheaper, but, uh, on the other hand, I didn't realize it was a full screen version and it's uh, a little slim on the features. So it's, it had a couple on there. So, uh, but anyway, love this movie. So this is the part where I have to remind everybody that in order to talk about Halloween and have a good time, we're going to have to spoil the movie thoroughly. So there will be spoilers that lie ahead. This is your final opportunity to turn it off. But we recommend you go back, watch Halloween, and then come back and enjoy this episode um, and let us know what you think. So, Chad, you want to take us away and give us a plot summary? Sure thing. So Michael Myers is the embodiment of evil, even from the early age of six when he stabs his hot sister to death with a kitchen knife. After being locked up in an insane asylum for the past 15 years, Michael escapes due to an incompetent security staff, promptly returns to his hometown of Haddonfield to terrorize the residents. He brutally takes out his frustrations on unsuspecting horny teenagers while stalking babysitter Lori Strode. Michael terrorizes Lori inside the Doyle's house until his gun-toting psychiatrist, Dr. Sam Loomis, finally catches up to him and shoots him several times in the chest. Michael falls out the window onto the yard below. However, when Loomis and Lori check the yard for the body, Michael has disappeared, allowing for a sequel because evil can never truly die. Absolutely. Evil does not die. Uh, so, John... Give us some other, what are your thoughts on the plot here? Uh, I mean, it, Chad, I think, nailed it about as much as we can without ruining too much of our discussion later. But, uh, yeah, I think that's that's good. Apparently, uh, it was written on a book by Curtis Richards. Uh, I didn't realize this. And uh, it's a very rare book, apparently. And uh, it uh, reveals a little more about Michael's rage in the book, Uh movie simplified things a little bit and i'm kind of glad they did because um rob zombie goes back into his remake and tries to show more and i think there's another sequel uh the curse of michael myers um i think that one had that one went a little better but uh i think michael myers is just a blunt instrument of evil expressionless absolutely john carpenter said he should never be sympathetic yeah yeah, and so he, he he got the idea of Michael Myers partially from uh, an experience in college where he toured a psychiatric facility and saw a kid and said he saw uh, p evil and he was truly terrified. I think one of the other elements that I've, I've this is something I've picked up on before that makes a good horror movie for me is uh, you know your concern for children. So uh, as uh, Laurie's babysitting, as Chad mentioned in this one, uh, the. Uh, that adds that ups the stakes considerably as she's uh, looking over one and then later two kids as her friend who uh, is also babysitting takes the job less seriously and dumps another kid on her lap. So, uh, um, you know, you're worried not only for her own safety, but the ability to keep uh, these two uh, likable kids. Well, one's more likable than the other. Um, 
<laughs> likable kids uh, and keep them safe. Well, so. They were great plot devices, too, because they introduced the concept of the boogeyman. You know, Tommy Doyle was always asking about the boogeyman, the boogeyman, and that yeah. is Michael Myers. That's a good point. I, I actually hadn't realized they, they are very functional to the plot as well. So, um, and then another interesting component in this is uh, Carpenter and Deborah Hill uh, stated many times over the years that they just did not want to depict uh, the virginity of the character, the wholesomeness of the character of Laurie Strode as a way of defeating the evil. It's just simply that the horny teens are preoccupied with other things and therefore uh, make themselves more vulnerable to getting uh, murdered. Uh, so... Yeah, that's because even when their friend is kind of saying, "Hey, there's someone out there," they don't notice there's a serial killer at large. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they kind of accidentally created a trope where the the female that gets undressed or is having sex or is uh, doing drugs, she winds up getting axed. And so, yeah, Carpenters had to come back and say, "That wasn't what I was going for." It's true. I mean. Honestly, he's kind of gone away from any, like, deep analysis. He said he just wanted to make a good horror movie. And he did. Like, it, yeah, he, because I, there are a lot of things that people have analyzed about this film and tried to, especially, especially in a retrospective manner, tried to say it encourages or discourages certain things. And uh, he's just like, I, I just wanted to make a good horror movie that was scary. He did. He did. And it, it, I think it's also interesting that it doesn't rely... Normally, I'm a big proponent of if you don't build good characters, then you generally don't have a very good horror movie. But this movie is also pretty simple with its characters. It, it's uh, Laurie is just simply a teenager in a sleepy suburban town that's much like a lot of middle America lives in. And this could have happened anywhere. I think that's part of what, why it resonated so, so much with so many people. And uh, obviously... Um, there's a strong sense of her being vulnerable, but you don't really know her whole backstory. You don't really know everything about her. You just know that she's a quiet kid in school, uh, not as popular as some of the other girls and kind of introverted and therefore not, uh, as much caught up in boys and the social scene. So. Bookish, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. She can, she complains she left her chemistry book. So John, you want to give us a rundown through the cast here? Yeah, we'll just go with some of the uh, the main ones here. So we have Donald Pleasance playing Dr. Sam Loomis as the evil-obsessed psychiatrist of Michael Myers. Jamie Lee Curtis plays, as you said, the kind of meek teenager Laurie Strode, who seems to be a little less popular. Very kind-hearted, though. And then Michael Myers is played by actually six different people. We're only going to mention three, but Nick Castle plays Michael Myers, or The Shape is often referred to, uh, for the majority of the movie. Uh, Tony Moran plays the unmasked Michael Myers, and Will Sandon plays the six-year-old Michael Myers from the beginning of the film. And PJ Souls plays our kind of sassy, ditzy friend, Linda Vanderklok. What a name. And, uh, Nancy I didn't know her Ka- last name. <laughs> yeah. Nancy Kyes plays our other friend, Annie Brackett, who is also the daughter of the town sheriff, Sheriff Lee Brackett, played by Charles Cyphers. And then the two kids we mentioned before were Kyle Richards, played Lindsay Wallace, and Brian Andrews, played, I think what Russell was mentioning, the more likable Tommy Doyle. 
Yeah, yeah. Lindsay's just kind of a zombie and just like watches TV and like lets the whole world pass. She really by. is. It's horrifying. Yeah, like, she's she's a little too <laughs> under a TV. I don't know. She answers the phone. Uh, yeah. She talks to John Carpenter actually. Yes, she does. She does. You're right about that. Um, but yeah, Tommy's yeah. a lot more likable. Uh, and so, uh, one note, I I was really surprised uh, Bond going back this time. Uh, you see something new every time. I forgot how much nicey keys is in there. Uh, uh, the character of Annie, she's actually in there a lot more than I remembered. Um, like I kind of had her about uh, hierarchically as the same level of importance as uh, Linda's character, but not. I didn't think that was the case. She has a lot more speaking lines, a lot more screen time. Oh, yeah. She has some of the best scenes in the movie, and she's actually a favorite of John Carpenter. She yeah, wants... she's been in a number of Carpenter films, yeah, including she... Assault on Precinct 13th, which is before this, I believe. Absolutely. And The Fog later on. Yes. Really? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. thanks for some connecting some dots here. That's why we do this. I didn't put put any of that together. So, um, One that I am going to put together is I gotta give uh, PJ Soul some credit. Uh, you know, she doesn't necessarily blow you away with this performance, but her ability to pick really awesome projects is is impressive. She goes from Carrie, Stripes, Rock and Roll High School, which she is the lead in, Breaking Away, which I love that movie, Private Benjamin, and then all of a sudden, I don't know if it's just she hit the wrong age or whatever, she starts to fade away and just go into TV movies and stuff like that. But uh, her film career is resoundingly strong. Um, well, if I read correctly, it, her role in Carrie is kind of what earned her this role. It's uh, when they saw that they wanted her. She she works her way into a lot of good movies. I'll just I'll point that out. So, um, so a few other thoughts uh, about uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. This is her first uh, movie, and she's actually a teenager in this. She's the only one who actually is a teenager. Uh, the other girls are a little bit older, playing younger, which is something Hollywood always does. But uh, at least Laurie is a little bit closer to the uh, um, proper age for the role. However, I didn't really show. I didn't pick up on that. Did you? Yeah, she actually looks older than the people that are actually 10 years older than her. Nancy Keys is uh, 10 years older than her. I thought that too. <laughs> Um, um, another fun one here is Donald Pleasance uh, actually did all of his scenes in only five days. So the total duration of his uh, time in the movie uh, is eighteen Eight, minutes. Eighteen minutes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and Donald Pleasance uh, told John Carpenter he didn't like the script, he didn't like the character, and the only reason he was doing this is because he liked uh, his granddaughter liked Assault in Precinct Thirteen. But uh, he later told them once he was friends that he was just testing the convictions of John Carpenter and was saying that he challenges all of his directors this way. He wanted to see how much he was really into this um, as you could kind of gauge how much energy you wanted to put into there. Um, Do you have any other thoughts on the cast here? Well, to connect some dots like we did earlier, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, her mother is Janet Lee, uh, who was Marion Crane in Psycho. And I think... John Carpenter had a big thing for Psycho. Sam Loomis was Marion Crane's lover in Psycho. He reuses that name. He uses the instrument for Michael Myers, the kitchen knife. So there's there's quite a bit of homage to Psycho. That's a great one too. Um, John, had you did you have any other thoughts uh, on the cast? Um, n- nothing more specifically, but actually on that thing of the Psycho is actually he use Psycho as more of an influence on this. I'm glad you mentioned that, Chad. Uh, because in Assault on Precinct 13, he uh, a lot of people didn't like that a major character or a major actor was killed so early in the film. 
And so he decided to take a much slower approach to this film, uh, as kind of Psycho did. And it works. Um, yes. So uh, it's interesting to note, um, Donald Pleasance, uh, that was not necessarily the first choice to give uh, the role of Dr. Loomis to. Christopher Lee actually turned it down and seemed to be the first choice. And Peter Cushing also turned down the role of Dr. Loomis. And there were a number of other considerations, uh, according to the internet, which is never wrong. Um, other people linked to being considerations include Peter O'Toole, Mel, uh, sorry, uh, Stephen Hill, uh, Walter Matthau, Jerry Van Deek, uh, Lawrence Tier Tiernley, uh, Kirk Douglas, John Belushi, Christopher uh, Lloyd, um, Lloyd Bridges, Abe Vigoda, Chris Christopherson, Sterling Hayden, um, David uh, Carradine, uh, Dennis Hopper, and Charles Napier, uh, oh, Yul Brynner, and Edward Bunk Bunkner. Uh, so a lot of other names, uh, many of whom are still familiar to this day. And well, I just like Pleasant so much, I can't see anybody else doing it. Well, from my understanding, Christopher Lee said it was one of his bigger regrets uh, in his career was to turn down that role. But uh, since you went ahead and mentioned Yul Brynner, I, I think it's important to note actually part of the concept of Michael Myers, as I mentioned before, because it wasn't just from one thing, uh, was from Yul Brynner's robot character in the original movie of Westworld, an unkillable robot. Another fun connection there. Um, let's talk about the director and the film creation here just a little bit. Uh, there's the, This is uh, part of the big reason this movie is such a success is how much John Carpenter did with so little. So as we mentioned before, with just three th $300,000, uh, Carpenter did so much. Um, John, do you want to take this one first and tell us what your thoughts on Carpenter are? Uh, I mean, I, I wish we had a basically a week to talk about him with this. I, I mean, the film is entirely based around him. I mean, he does everything for it. Uh, I mean, he got it off the ground, uh, you know, pitched it, was the one who just really see And the more I read about it, the more he just really was the driving life behind it all. And you can tell he just really has a good love for it. And what amazes me is how quickly he did some of the stuff. It took him about 10 days to write the screenplay, or for, for the screenplay to be written, it, which is pretty quick for a movie that does so well and you know continues to live on so well. But uh, And the music, which is so iconic, he, he wrote it all in just a few days. Um, but he has so much control over it. And as you said, Russell, with so little, like having that small a budget and you got to keep in mind, half of the budget was spent on cameras on Panavision cameras that were very high tech at the time. So really with the rest of it, you were operating with uh, $150,000, which isn't much considering your lead actor, Donald Pleasance is only taking 18 minutes, as you mentioned, is getting paid 20,000 of it. Uh, right. I mean, the mask for cost them one dollar. Yeah, even yeah, yeah. It's like, the mask cost one dollar. You know, they uh, the and he had helped, and uh, you got to give the actors credit too. Most of them provided their own wardrobes. Uh, yep. Jamie Lee Curtis bought hers from J. C. Penney for uh, less than a hundred dollars, if I recall. Uh, so, but just he's really driving everything behind it. Certainly is. Um, Chad, what do you think Carpenter is bringing to this movie here? I mean, John touched on the majority of it. He's just so central to the vision, to the drive of this movie, uh, to everything. His genius is just on display. I, I did love this quote I found about John Carpenter because uh, he's had some 
great hits uh, that were mostly low budget, and then his high budgets they haven't done as well for the most part. But uh, this quote said, give John Carpenter $100,000, he'll make you a $20 million movie. Give John Carpenter $100 million, he'll still give you a $20 million movie. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's a little bit of a backhanded compliment, but... Uh... I guess restrictions sometimes do uh, breed creativity, yeah. and that's true in design, and that's uh, true with uh, direction as well sometimes. I mean, uh, I'm thinking recently, uh, one of my favorite movies that's come out in recent years is The Babadook, and it's, you know, it was funded off Kickstarter, it's not got a lot of cast, it's done with low-budget stuff, and it's, uh, it's phenomenal. And it, it reminds me, one of the reasons I have so much appreciation for it, it's similar to Halloween, it's just, you know... The resourcefulness, and it doesn't show that it's low budget. So, yeah, paranormal um, activity was what, like fifteen thousand dollars, something like that. Yeah, the yeah. first, the, you know, the first one of those is really good too. I think. And Blair Witch, like it or hate it, it was low budget too. They actually returned the camera equipment to Circuit City after the movie was filmed. <laughs> I didn't know that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one other thing I, I just like to say is, you have to give him major credit for it he seems to walk the fine line very well of he knows what he wants and what to do it but he isn't against listening to other people's input uh and understanding maybe how something could be done a little bit better but uh and maybe it's because we can see his whole body of work now but you know some of those movies you're talking about uh they didn't do well of his at first. Let's but run through the list real cult classics. Let's run through the list real quick here while you're on that. I mean, I, as you mentioned, in '76 he did Assault on Precinct 13. That's what fueled him to get this movie, and that that helped give him the credibility, even as a young filmmaker, to do this. Uh, this movie comes along pretty quickly after a TV movie uh, called. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, so this is 1978 for Halloween. Follows that up with uh, TV movie Elvis, The Fog in 1980, Escape from New York in 81, The Thing, which is one of my all-time favorites in 82, Christine, which is uh, which actually The Thing is not well-received, unfortunately. Uh, it's underappreciated. And so uh, his career takes a little bit of a dip, and uh, he has a hard time getting what he wants. And he goes and uh, doing Christine, a Stephen King movie in 83, Starman in 84, um, 86, he does uh, Big Trouble in Little China, and uh, They Live in 88. Um, and then he slows down a good bit. Uh, he he comes back and revisits uh, Escape from L.A. in 1996. He does a remake of uh, Village of the Damned as well. Um, that one didn't turn out too good, in my opinion. And um, Vampires in 98. And then uh, The Ward was his last movie in 2010. Everybody hated that movie, but I like it. So um, the, I don't have too many criticisms for Carpenter through his entire body of work, through the ups and downs, minus Village of the Damned. I just appreciate it with Jamie Lee Curtis. So this movie was shot out of order, uh, and Carpenter developed what he called the uh, the fear meter, the terror meter, and he yes. would give her a separate level for okay, you're at this level of scared right now. You're at a five. You're at a ten. So that was that was really cool to listen to him talk about of developing this fear meter for. Her. That's cool. That is. I mean, and like you said, she was an inexperienced actress, so I'm sure she um, definitely appreciated but, uh, that. But I guess one of the things I also like is it with a lot of these movies you're kind of mentioning, he's swinging for the fences, and you can tell he is. Uh, he, he's not looking to to, to get a double. Uh, and honestly, a lot of the ones you mentioned, and I'd hate to say it, even Village of the Dan, maybe it was just Christopher Reeve, uh, you, you know, or Mark Hamill being in it. Some of these are guilty pleasures for me. Big Trouble in Little China? 
Like trouble. I, I don't even think that's a guilty pleasure. I, I think, think it's that, well liked. Wonder. I think it's wonderful. I yeah, think people like I it. Think, you could. I, even, we could do an episode on that someday. I'm not saying that we're going to do it like next week, but it, it could happen someday. I'm on board. J- no shame. J- James Woods and, and vampires. I loved it. Like him as a leather dressed vampire hunter. I, I saw it in theaters as a kid. I, I I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a guilty pleasure. Um. So I think it's one of the really cool things uh, Carpenter said uh, about Halloween. He said, this was just a really fun movie to make. Uh, he said, if you make a horror movie, everybody on the cast is having a fun time. Uh, if you make a drama or a comedy even, he said, people are very stressed out. People argue more. People are very serious. And uh, there's a lot of um, consternation about it. But he said Halloween was genuinely a fun movie to make for the for him, for Deborah Hill and the cast around him. So uh, I think when people are having fun, I'd like to think that that shows through with what the I think that yell uh, that yields a better product, and so um, you can tell when he talks about a lot of his other projects that he he's pretty critical of his own work, like he has a pretty high standard, but uh, you can tell for what this did for his career that he holds this one in his heart. I think I think he views this as his best movie, and um, I I haven't heard him say that, but I just judging off of how he speaks, and uh, I might agree. What do you think? Is this is this uh, is this the top of the hill for you? This is the gold standard for horror movies for me. So, yeah, I, I mean, I love the thing, uh, but this Halloween is just the top of the hill for me. John, top top, of, top notch for you? It, it, it's up there. I, I have to give a little caveat that I think that there's different types of horror films, but in, encompassed in this genre, the especially having a quote-unquote slasher feel to it, yeah, it, it's definitely the top. Because... Well, I think the thing is kind of a horror movie. I think it's also science fiction. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's a, you're, you're a little bit apples and oranges there. But uh, I, I mean, I, I like Nightmare on Elm Street. I liked Friday the Thirteenth. But this is actually, in my opinion, well above those. Um, one of the things I got to point out that he did with his camera work, as John mentioned, a large part of the budget went into the camera. They had these cameras that. And I don't, forgive me, I don't have the name on me right now, but they are strapped onto the actual cameraman. They're really heavy. But uh, these first-person angle shots that they take, uh, like in the opening scene in the movie when you see young Michael Myers approaching the Myers house, uh, as you see Laurie walking up the steps later in the movie, as you see Michael following Laurie, these uh, these moving uh, single-frame shots, or sorry, not single-frame, but these moving shots that appear to not have a lot of cuts in them, um, some cases they do, but there's not a lot of cuts where they're actually following and you're getting that motion of the camera. It's it's and paired with the music, it's very eerie and that and that's that just sets the mood so so well. So again, they use they spent that money on the camera and there's a reason they did that so that you can get the movement and the feel of that first person thing. I mean, uh, even in the beginning of the movie, they put a mask over the camera and uh, they you see the eye slits. Uh, yeah, and that was a late addition. They didn't do it in the original cut, so that was a. I think it was Deborah Hill that suggested it, but it was a wonderful addition. That's a, that, is yeah. a, that is a good suggestion. And By those cameras way, were Panavision cameras. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, I knew it was out there somewhere. I didn't make it to my notes, so uh, Panavision. So they would have a 2.35 two, uh, to 1 scope. That's... Uh, I'm, yay. <laughs> those are numbers. Ratio. <laughs> <laughs> If you worked in a movie theater, you, you know the difference between scope and uh, but 
Hey, you were talking about, hey, you had to have a different screen on your DVD. Uh, that's why uh, I went ahead and got the copy I did, because you got to look at your ratios. Yeah, well, I'll probably be selling my copy at some point. And uh, Dr. Sidney Pollack taught me about pan and scan and how awful it was. This so. is one of those movies I like so much I'll probably buy twice, because <laughs> I'm not pleased with... I, I cheaped it up too much, because I was like, wow, $9 for a new copy? Great. Bad. And you'll probably be telling the story in 30 years about how you bat, still bought the bad copy and you're kicking yourself for it. It's possible. It's possible. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a contest and I'll get rid of it somehow and to a lucky listener. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sign it. It'll be worth something. Autographed with a nice note that says, worst purchase ever. It's going to be a pain in the butt to like mail it down to John in North Carolina and then, have, like, and then, then mail it from there. <laughs> we, we do this show in different locations, so... Uh, maybe Chad will just forge your name for you because he's here in Pittsburgh with me. <laughs> How do you spell flack? <laughs> P-H. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was another interesting thing where Carpenter uh, really wanted the blankness of the character. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but uh, he did not want to make Michael Myers relatable for the audience. And, um, again, he is this, he's this unstoppable Force. you hear that rob zombie not relatable don't need the childhood man i don't know i, I don't have time to go into all the things wrong with the rob zombie <laughs> movie i'm trying not to go down that well because i get a little bit mad i get a little bit i get a, I get a little bit of steam coming out of my yeah, ears right now let, let's let's steer out of the dark <laughs> <laughs> stick to the music but yeah no, it, it, it's uh De- definitely, I think it was it was a great move to do that to make it, and it, it's done so well. And I think that's why Donald Pleasance really nails it with that when he's telling his assistant, like that he hopes he never gets out, and you know he's gonna put him on Thorazine, which if you're aware of any drugs, like that basically just puts you into a coma, and uh, he just wants to make sure that he is not getting out. I love that part in the beginning. I forgot about that part, but in the beginning, uh, the nurse is talking to him as if he's not compassionate about his about his patient, and she's like, "And he does your... come off that way at first, but yeah." So she's like, "What's your problem?" He referred to Michael as a thing, and then she's like, "You know, you don't want him to get out," and he goes, "No, never, yep. never, ever, ever, Spent never." Seven years trying to make sure that he doesn't get out. Yeah, yeah I mean, we... and, and then he spent eight trying to get through to him, like, you know, but just didn't. And then I like when he's telling the sheriff later, he's like, I watched him stare at a wall for 15 years, not seeing the wall, but being inhumanly patient. And uh, I thought that was a really good line. Looking beyond the wall. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's another good line that he had in that uh, early portion there as well, where, um, you know, she's like, why do you... Why are you taking him there then? And he goes, it's the law. I have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I don't agree with it. And so, and man, that opening scene really, I, that, that just creeped me out so much too with the, the patients running around. So, I mean, he puts you on edge right at the beginning of the movie. You know, the, the jack-o'-lantern with the t- title credits are rolling, the, the uh, young uh, first person of Michael Myers murdering his sister. And um, who I didn't know was topless. Uh, I, apparently, I think I've seen this every time on TV. And um, she was actually a Playboy centerfold. I did not realize that. Yes. Yeah. Clearly, they do some creative cropping or blurring or something on the TV version. And um, and uh, anyway, and then they go directly into this scene where you know Loomis is 
approaching the hospital com- complex where Michael's uh, detained. And I mean, when I thought about it, I was like, man, he has hit you with a lot of stuff early. Like he's got you on edge. He's keeping you there. And uh, so when he slows the pace down, as you mentioned, the pace isn't super high. Um, he has given he's he's given you a good shakeup for the first quarter of this movie, I'd say. Yeah, they they said they were going for a scare every 10 minutes, and I don't know that it particularly achieves that goal, but there's certainly just tension and, like you're saying, almost relentless atmosphere throughout this entire movie. Just the musical cues, Michael Myers' appearances, uh, appears behind a car or a bush or... Um, oh man, that bush thing still... That's, I remember when I watched it the first time, I was like, oh my gosh! The clothesline scene... Yeah, that is that is just excellent. Yeah. And I saw something somewhere. This is an interesting thing. Apparently in that bush scene, and I really looked for it, and it kind of looks like it, but apparently you can see John Carpenter's cigarette smoke popping up behind it. Yeah, I saw uh, that If too. you look carefully. And I was like, huh. And so I, I went back and went to that scene. I really looked. I'm like, there's definitely a haze. I can't guarantee that smoke. I don't know if it was edited or whatnot, but it'd be interesting to see that Carpenter was right there and that into it to be having a cigarette at the same time. It seems like he's smoking in every interview I've ever seen. So <laughs> I, I seems very believable. <laughs> um, any other thoughts on uh, the director of how the film was created? Uh, do you guys want to talk about atmosphere or any other thoughts on the uh, creation? Well, I think you nailed it, Russell, with his, the point of making the movie fun. Jamie Lee Curtis is on record of saying she does not like horror movies. But when you hear her talk about Halloween, she just says it with a smile and she talks about Shapey. That's what she called the actor (laughs) that played Michael Myers or the shape. Um, She seems to have a real friendship. Uh, There are pictures of her with Shapey. She just seems to have had a a fun time. And that's really important for what was a 19-year-old at the time. Yeah. Yeah, when you like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to do a better job of it. So, I mean, you know, if uh, if you make me, you know, I'm an architect, and if you make me sit there and design, you know, the most mundane thing ever, uh, you know, a giant box with no windows or something like that, you know, I'm not going to have fun with it. But, uh, you know, same thing. I mean, if you're engaged and you like what you're doing, you're going to produce better work. That's always the case, so... Well, it's kind of funny, you know, that you're talking about everyone having fun because I, I saw a picture in doing some uh, reading about this uh, of Nick Castle playing Michael Myers, and he's got the mask over kind of on his head, but he's just got a drink in his hand and he's making a goofy face and smiling. And it's just like, I didn't think I could ever kind of laugh at a Michael Myers thing, but that was it. Like, he genuinely looked like he was enjoying what he was doing. He's pretty funny in interviews and the behind the scenes uh, footage, so. Uh, I bet I bet he was fun. I bet he was fun to work with. So, last week, as we uh, said, I said let's go to uh, Hayden Field, and apparently, uh, as you guys have both correctly pronounced it this way, it is Haddon Field. Uh, I've been saying it wrong for I don't know uh, fifteen years now. So, uh, I guess I, I know better now. So this takes place in Haddon Field, Illinois, which is actually a fictional town. This does not. This is not a real town in Illinois, but uh, there is a Haddon Field, New Jersey. Um, but, uh, this is actually not shot in Illinois for that matter. It's actually shot in South Pasadena in Hollywood. Uh, so in early spring, I might add not, not October. So, uh, the crew actually was doing things like, uh, 
picking up paper leaves and dropping them around the neighborhood. And because budget was so scarce, they'd sit there and go back and pick up the prop leaves and put them in a garbage bag and then, uh, you know, use them again in another scene. I love that mental image of just crew picking up painted leaves after every shot. That's just a ridiculous thing to think about nowadays with the big budget Marvel movies and things like that coming out. Well, when is apparently they had a hard time finding pumpkins too. Yeah, it wasn't fall. And... That's a good point, actually. Have you ever tried to buy a pumpkin in March? I have not, but uh, it's one of my chief complaints. So the stabbing sound that you hear is actually them stabbing so, a watermelon. Watermelon. And I really feel like it'd be appropriate if they were stabbing a pumpkin, but I think part of the problem was they could only find like three or four for the movie because they had to break one. They did, and that was a legit pumpkin. That yeah. wasn't that wasn't a cardboard pumpkin. So, um, you're right. I don't know where they imported that pumpkin from. <laughs> like, if you're a pumpkin farmer and you're trying to sell, like, pumpkins, you're like, wait, you want one? Great. I just wonder who said, like, spring is a really great idea to do this. Like, why can't you just wait till fall? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, uh, this this movie is set at its current time uh, in 78, but it's also set in 1963. So the movie opens up uh, in, a, in a flashback uh, when Michael was younger and so it's a 15-year gap between uh, that Michael is in uh, in the institution and, uh, you know, obviously a lot's changed in 15 years and the world's forgotten about him. And I think that's a I think that's an interesting point uh, because when this takes place, they don't take it very seriously that he's out. Even the people who are technically uh, detaining him or responsible for him don't seem to take it seriously as his own doctor does. Uh, but Loomis knows. So, John, any thoughts on uh, the the uh, feeling or like of like the setting here? Uh, I actually, I, I kind of liked what you touched on. I, I, I liked when they're exiting, when Doctor Loomis is about to leave the institution, and he's just like telling. He's like, I've tried to tell everybody. Like he can just tell nobody's listening to him. They're like, Oh, Haddonfield's 150 miles away. Uh, I, I think that. Pleasant self drives that urgency. Uh, and actually, it, it's a neat-looking hospital, which I believe was in Southern California. Uh, but uh, I'll, also, I agree with you what you mentioned before, Russell. Uh, one of the, at least for me, one of the creepier parts of the movie is when Dr. Loomis and his assistant are pulling up and see all those patients wandering around. Uh, it, because you can't see them that well. No. And, and it's just that, like, it really puts the mood that scene like put the whole mood on the atmosphere like that little atmosphere you can't see very far in front of you it's stormy you can just see part of a broken gate and uh then even just him hopping over the car and breaking the glass puts you puts you on edge right away did you uh would you say that uh, you knew you were in southern california or were you convinced that you were in the mid uh, sleepy suburbs of mid in the uh, of the midwest chad I- well, you, you can see palm trees in the background if you pay enough attention. I, I, I haven't noticed them, to be honest with you. I've heard that you can, but I just get too sucked into the movie. Get the Blu-ray copy. You'll find them. Oh, <laughs> they cut those out in the widescreen. They, they it's do. It's the palm trees at the edge. <laughs> they do. It's the one advantage to the $2.50 DVD. But uh, no, I mean, really, you have to be really looking for it. You just, you're right. You get sucked into the atmosphere, and I just buy it as middle of nowhere, Illinois. Yeah, yeah, and it, it it feels like it. And actually, it's actually kind of an expensive place to live because that part of California is expensive. But uh, in the end, it, it's convincing as a middle class neighborhood. So, uh, 
And uh, it's interesting, the Myers house, uh, which they worked in, was actually an abandoned house. And in order to do the Myers house flashback, they put wallpaper up, they painted it, and uh, ended up having to basically strip it back down and retrash it again for later scenes. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting piece of uh, set design uh, that they had on that. So, um, John, you, did you have any thoughts on uh, the uh, wardrobe, maybe? Um. I kind of mentioned before, I found it interesting, first off, that the wardrobe was financed a lot by the actors buying their own clothing, which is, I have to give major credit to everyone in, on that. Uh, sometimes to make a great movie, it means everyone's got to get their head in the same place. And, uh, you know, especially if you're a first-time actress like Jamie Lee Curtis, especially in 78, $100, probably a fair amount of money to spend on it. Um, but I, I think my favorite thing about it is the fact that the infamous mask is actually Captain James Tiberius Kirk. Uh, t- it was a two dollar mask. <laughs> yeah, for for like nothing. They just ripped off the eyebrows, teased up the hair, like it was different hair. The mask was... a little bit. Yeah, like they, they 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 did some stuff to it. But and Shatner didn't know it for a long time. Yeah. But he was honored apparently when he found out. But uh, just being resourceful like that because they apparently considered Nixon. They considered the clown mask, but they tested something and it was too creepy. Rob John. And yeah, it's like, and I and I agree. Like the clown mask, it, what they came up with is, I mean, honestly, it's one of the most iconic. I mean, kill, like in horror movies, it's I, of any mask or even just character. I mean, and just using basic coveralls of a mechanic. Like I, actually, I started wondering. I was like. Where does Michael Myers find all these coveralls? Like, this, it's like it, it contributes he's to him being it contributes to him being a very blank slate, though, as well. It's the, the absolutely you know, he, perfect choice. Like, but it's not expensive. You know, it's nice and easy. And you know what? They're made to get dirty. That's they, it. Like, and so they shall when he's wearing them. I, I am so glad they didn't use the clown mask, though, because then, you know, it maybe have been affected later on and to a lesser degree but i still like the movie killer clowns from outer space <laughs> i haven't seen that one but you know what it's dumb but it's fun they you would think they'd run out of clown jokes but they're pretty uh <laughs> pretty well spread out throughout the movie um i think we've i think we've talked about it but i i want to go into a little bit more uh the the score is just so important in this movie what is what does the music do for you in this movie chad well, I can't believe they had a test screening and a female fan complained there was practically no music. And so John Carpenter, like uh, John mentioned earlier, he went back and he added in this music in she three said it days. Was, she said it wasn't scary, yeah. the movie. Like, she complains that this isn't very good. Yeah, just the musical cues, that iconic theme song. I mean, I can't separate the two. It's just so important to the mood to the tension, to everything that John Carpenter is trying to accomplish here. He just, he nails it. He does. He does. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's not a complicated thing. It's uh, What it is, though, is it's a 5-4 time time signature, and uh, he played some harmonics. And uh, it, it is very eerie, and that rhythm is not 4-4 four, four time signature. 4-4 four, four is what almost all of your, you know, run-of-the-mill songs are going to be, so it's very familiar. It goes in the ear. It sounds good. But... Uh, this is off kilter and it gets you off kilter. And um, so he composed and fully improvised the score in just three days. Again, like John said, fast turnaround. 
But uh, he made the changes uh, and said uh, that he made some alterations to the movie and then showed it to another test audience, of which some of the people were the same. And the response was completely different. People were scared. People said, this is good. This is really good. And you've made a lot of changes. And he, he went on to say, I really didn't make that many changes and put some music in and so um yeah john what does this iconic score do for you it i mean it does everything for me uh as you know russell i i, I love film scores and i i often have to make sure people when i'm talking to them about movies when they refer to a soundtrack that they're talking about songs that were original scores for the movie or uh you know there's only really one other musical score that I, I can think of that puts me on edge or creeps me out as much like that. And honestly, it's Jaws. Yeah, I, I was it, thinking it, Jaws. It, yeah, it's like it's the only other one that kind of, and it has that same uneasiness feeling. And, uh, and I, I love science fiction films. And you can kind of tell Carpenter takes a lot of his, because he likes the keyboard, clearly. Uh, he said he can play pretty much any keyboard. Uh, I said he just can't read or write music, uh, which I find funny. But uh, he, he doesn't seem full of himself on making the music and, uh, you know, is able to do it seamlessly, really. But in this movie, I think it makes all the difference. I mean, just those opening credits, when you first hear that, like, it's just... I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have known the five-fourths time or uh, ten-eight, whatever you referring to say i, I I'm numbers like again ratios yeah, music I, I, theory I, nerd like, stuff I, I, I can't i can't read or write a note uh, and i can't play the keyboard we're throwing uh, all the pretentious numbers that are people today <laughs> but and i love that he refers to as the bowling green philharmonic orchestra oh, and, wow uh, <laughs> that's a little bit dark yeah it's like well he, he likes to throw out bowling green there that's where he's from it's uh, he, he likes to say that that I mean, and he did have some help from Dan Wyman, uh, a music professor at San Jose State. But I, it really just makes the whole movie. I, I would have agreed, honestly, had I screened it like I don't think it would have been nearly as creepy. I, if you put this movie on and just removed that entirely, I I don't think I would have even remembered it, honestly. Um, no, that's fair. And uh, another one that I wanted to mention is even Michael's car is a blank slate. It's this fairly generic tan, uh, you know, I guess uh, station car that they and forgive me, I'm not a car guy. I don't actually know the exact model, um, but it also is very blank and generic. It can be uh, concealed and um, you can it just blends in. And I actually think it's interesting that it's with him as he's going to all of these scenes, whether it be where he goes to murder Annie, whether it be when uh, Loomis is actually talking to um, uh, Annie's father, who's the sheriff in town outside of the hardware store that he had robbed earlier. And uh, Mary pointed this out. There's kind of a scene where it hesitates on just Loomis standing there. And it seems like a little bit of a loose end, but it's not. The car that drives down the street in the background is Michael's car again. And again, it was so generic. I've seen this movie so many times that I, I didn't notice it until this time. Mary pointed it out to me, my, uh, my wife. So um, that, that, uh, that car itself is just another part of the terrifying blank slate that could be any car. So My understanding, it, it was a rental car. And the rental agency didn't even know they were using it. Uh, they, they were just told, go get the most official looking car you could. Uh, 
I was trying to look through it. I, I believe it was uh, Ford. Uh, I was trying to find it in my notes. Can't seem to locate it, but uh, I did know that that uh, I found it funny that the rental agency had no idea that it was being used for that purpose. But let's see, it'd be a good advertising technique, honestly. Yes, we we provide serial killers with cars too. Oh no, I I thought I'd stumbled on it, but I found a uh, oh, it's a 1978 Ford LTD wagon. Okay. So. There you go for all the car people out there. I've done you justice. I'm racking my brains. I can't really think of many other horror movies where you actually see the killer driving. Yeah, sometimes you'll see them like jump in a vehicle, but this actually had Michael Myers behind the wheel just driving, following his victims. Which is really an interesting kind of plot point because he's been in an asylum since he was six years old. Yeah, Um, And this is a lot of Halloween fans have had, I mean, there's, funny theories and interesting theories and i think one came out in a movie sort of that he just observed loomis when he was being transported very carefully but that's actually uh, from the original book so i i i I had read that some people do criticize that as like why can he drive and uh the original book again that had more development that carpenter wisely decided not to use too much of um they said that you know michael would be shipped from place to place before or from exercise to exercise and Loomis would drive him around and he just simply watched Loomis drive. And in fairness, if you were a 10 year old, couldn't you have figured out how to drive a car yourself? I mean, have a little bit of hard time reaching the pedals, but obviously he's a full grown man now. So that's not much of an issue. You turn left, it goes left. He was probably stick shift in the seventies though. Oh, but he but he drives mm. it out of the out of the place pretty proficiently, and I like how Loomis even said the uh, the man he was talking to said, "How do you know he's got he can't even drive a car? How do you think he can get there?" It's like, "Well, he was doing really well last night." Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's just like, and, and I think it really drives the point home that Michael Myers is like, he is crazy, not stupid. Mm. Like he's totally insane, but not an idiot. I think it's time to go into look for this. Uh, John, do you have any look for this moments or uh, hit me with one? We'll go in a circle here one at a time. Well, a couple. yeah, honestly, there's just so many of them. And we've touched on a few of them, really. But uh, I, I, I wanted to say that, and I think we kind of mentioned before, but John Carpenter does make a cameo as Paul talking on the phone, being Annie's boyfriend to Lindsay, Russell's least favorite child, maybe ever, but, <laughs> but which I like that, you know, it, he was able to get himself in there. Um, and I just think Lindsay's parents need to unplug her from the TV from time to time. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I, I agree. De- definitely. Chad, well, look for this. <laughs> but I have, I have one more actually. Wait, wait, wait. wait I we'll, do we'll, one, we'll, we'll come I, back I around. One... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Chad. Uh, so sticking with the driving theme for me, Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult is playing in the background while Annie and Lori are driving. Michael's actually following them. That's a good song. I like that one. Uh, Michael Myers was named the European, uh, was actually named after the European distributor for Carpenter's previous film, uh, Assault on Precinct 13. So actually Michael Myers was actually a real guy's name. Uh, kind of an odd thing to do for a guy you actually like. I'm going to name a serial killer after you and everybody's going to think of you as a murderer. <laughs> so John. Um, I'd just like to note that the film the children are watching, at least one of them, uh, was The Thing from Another World. And uh, a few years later, John Carpenter would go on to direct The Thing. Oh, that is perfect. Uh, I, yeah, good good one on that one. Chad, you got another one? So the kid that 
uh, played young Michael Myers, uh, Will Sandon, I believe was his name. He winds up being a police officer. He didn't go and, into film at all. And Los Angeles, I believe. Yeah. One of the more dangerous cities. Maybe um, if you learn about crime as a kid, <laughs> you learn to fight it. Uh, so we talked about Rob Zombie's uh, love of Halloween, despite uh, the fact that he didn't do a very good job of remaking it later in 2007. But uh, the audio clip of the bullies, the three bullies who are picking on Tommy, of saying, he's going to get you, the buggy man is coming. That's actually in the beginning of uh, White, uh, White Zombie uh, song, uh, I'm Your Boogeyman. Uh, and so uh, he actually inserts that sound clip from the movie into his song, which is something he's done a little bit of here and there. So, uh, John, you got another one? Um, no, I, I think I touched on most of the other ones I'd, I'd like to. Any other fun ones, Chad? Last one for me, Jamie Lee Curtis improvised the song she's singing while Michael's following of I think he was like just the two of us, not the one you're thinking of. But yeah, <laughs> but she completely improvised and made up that song. That makes sense. They didn't have to pay rights for anybody's lyrics. <laughs> there you go. I didn't think of that. Walk, walk, walk all day long. Yeah, just walk, walk, walk. I sing this song. <laughs> just hum something. Yeah. Um, and then my last one is uh, originally in the script, Dr. Loomis was uh, having a surprised reaction after the Michael Myers body that had fallen off the balcony in the end. Uh, was missing. Uh, Pleasance actually read the script and went and talked to a carpenter and uh, he asked him, he said, uh, now I'm reading this. Do you want me to do it as I'm surprised? It doesn't really say, or should I do it as in, I, I knew this would happen kind of a reaction. And Carpenter is like, Ooh, that's good. I like that. What do you think we should do? And uh, even in asking the question he knew. And so Carpenter, another example of John saying he uh, works with the people he's working with and takes good ideas. Uh, he leaned on a pro of Donald Pleasance on this one, and they did it with uh, Donald Pleasance has this, uh, you know, remorseful face of like, oh, man, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> and so uh, sure enough, it happened. He gets up at the end and he's gone. So which goes on to be a reoccurring theme for another 11 movies or 10 <laughs> movies. So um, Let's ask, uh, how did this movie affect you? Uh, Chad, you want to take this one first? I mean, you clearly talked about how it started or kindled your love affair with horror movies, but uh, how, when you watch this movie, how does it make you feel? It, it's still, I've probably seen it a dozen or more times. It's still nerve-wracking. It's tense. I just, I get absorbed into the atmosphere. And honestly, uh, the look on Linda's face when Lori finds her in that closet that stuck with me from childhood. That's the scene that just, it was seared into my memory. Um, she looks like she's really crammed in there. Yeah. Yeah, and just, she has this look of horror on her face. I mean, she just got strangled to death, so there's that. But uh, it just, it did. It kindled a love of the genre for me. It made me want to go out and see more movies like it. Annie's uh, body on the bed with a headstone on it probably yeah, uh, rattled Ju you. That, the that, Judith that, Myers. Yeah, that was pretty that was pretty creepy that's all just bam 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 you you run into uh uh is it paul uh, that's hanging from the ceiling she... that one was a little bit sillier but i mean uh annie's body that he kills his first victim he lays out on a bed with a headstone of his of his uh, dead sister from 15 years ago who he also murdered and stole the headstone yeah. sticks it on the bed in front of her dead body and lays it on somebody's bed that just whew. And that just goes to show you how strong Michael Myers is, too. Yeah, that he's just I was thinking about the headstone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go on. Oh, no, that's fine. It's just, I love this movie. I could, I watch it almost every year, and I'll keep watching it every year. Absolutely. And uh, 
John, how does this movie make you feel? Well, I mean, it, it it's truly terrifying. And uh, I enjoyed kind of reading some about the, the reviews. And apparently uh, the, the late critic Gene Siskel said it, it scared him so much that he took a cab home after seeing it. And he was two block, lived two blocks from the theater. Oh, man, and, that's in good. In fairness, I think he and, was a Chicago at, critic. And this, this in theory, takes place in Illinois. <laughs> but, so but he was more, a local guy. <laughs> But even more, he looked in the shower specifically before he took one when he got home. He made sure to look before he did any, like, he, he said he was that frightened by it. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah, it, it, it's just, as we mentioned, I mean, from the music, from the onset, it, it's just, uh, it, it's got a really suspenseful, like, fright to it. But honestly, one of the more, like, memorable moments for me is when Laurie is running around trying to get help. Um, and you, she literally goes up to a house and pounds on the door and someone looks out the window. Oh yeah. My heart's thumping. And there. then just tur turns off the light. I was just like, ouch. Like, like, no, go away. We like already nice have cookies. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is supposed to be like nice suburbia. Like if there's a woman blood curdling screams of help, like I'm, I'd like to think someone w would at least open the door and see what's going on. Harold, who was that? It's just those Jehovah's Witnesses again. I, I turned the light off. They don't know we're home. I just wonder if the pranks had gotten out of control in that street or what had happened. Because you're right, John. It's like scared woman beating on your door, screaming for help. And they're like, nah. We already have Wait. given away all of our candy. Go away. It's like, please, I'm getting murdered out here. I don't care what murdering's happening. I don't care how scary your costumes are. I have no more Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> Go away. Well, and, and I, I can't, and it's probably John Carpenter, and like the idea of having that fear meter, uh, as mentioned before, and Jamie Lee Curtis portraying it so well. After that happens, she seems kind of hopeless and just so desperate, like, uh, you, you just really feel for her in that moment, at least for me. I, it just, it really sticks with me. Um, this one reminds me of a time when I would be perhaps home on my own. My folks would go away and I'm in the middle of a completely safe cul-de-sac and sleepy Charleston, West Virginia. It's nothing, nothing too threatening, super low crime rate. But, um, you know, it seems cool at first during the day, but sometimes I'd have these weird moments at night where I'd be like, oh, I'm home alone. And at that point in your life, you're never alone, really, in a house, and you're just like, I don't feel safe. And um, and perhaps this movie actually puts that little bit of chill in you, and uh, you're not sure if Michael Myers is going to be standing across the street in a tan Ford uh, wagon, uh, ready to target you. Because maybe you dropped a key on his doorstep. Because <laughs> that's how he targets her, I think, right? Is that is that all he does to get on her list? I mean, uh, get her on his list? Depends on the sequel. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that, yeah, that is very true. Uh, time for my favorite part, guys. Uh, you ready for some superlatives? Absolutely. Chad, I'm oh, going to yeah. give you the first crack at this uh, MVP. I'd like to think I was going out of the box, but I think this is going to be a popular selection for this particular movie. It's got to be John Carpenter. Uh, without his score, without his direction, uh, you guys mentioned it. People were bored. People weren't scared. Uh, just what he injects into this film makes it one of the 
golden standards of horror movies, of the slasher genres. It makes it terrifying, and it just makes it so memorable and enjoyable. Absolutely. John, MVP. Yeah, um, I, I had a feeling there might be a clean sweep on this one. I, I don't think you can pick anybody other than John Carpenter uh, for most of the reasons Chad just said. It's just he really is he is the heart, soul, and really the mind of, of, of this this whole film uh there's a lot of great con- contributors um outside of him but without him n- none of this gets off the ground yeah absolutely and uh so i'm gonna make it a clean sweep john carpenter is for me we've been singing his praises all night so i'm gonna ask chad at this point best supporting actor he didn't even have a speaking role but honestly for me it's will send and just that one gaze he gives when his mask is pulled off, you really do believe that this six-year-old kid has just started on a journey of irredeemable evil. It sticks with you. I remember that kid's face. And you're right, he's in there for like seven seconds. Yeah. If that, so. Well done, kid. Yeah. Chad doesn't even normally like kid actors. I do not. Please don't include them in most movies. But this one, yep, good job. Are we on the same page with Lindsay? Yeah, yeah, she's pretty doll yeah i could do without her yeah okay uh, john best supporting actor um i'm gonna have to go with uh is it nancy keys is that what you all that's how I, that, that's how i read it k-y-e-s okay. uh, we're sorry for mis- mispronouncing your name uh but i think she does a great job of being not just totally your steric stereotypical teenager because she's got some She's spunky. Yeah, she's spunky. Yeah, like she's got something extra to her, like not just ditzy or bookish or anything like that. Uh, I I think she really is one of the more enjoyable supporting roles in this. I'm going to follow you up on that one and pick Nancy Keys as well as Annie. Uh, She she does a lot to advance the plot of this movie. I mean, if you take her out of this, a lot of it uh, suffers, and it's a very important role to get right. Um, And I would even debate that it's probably the third most important role next to Laurie and Loomis. So um, I, I pick her as well. Hidden Gem, somebody that you might uh, not pay attention to but, or is underappreciated, uh, Chad. For me, it's Deborah Hill. Uh, she actually puts on the Michael Myers get up at one point because there just wasn't anyone else around. But she wrote all of the female dialogue. And so that's what helps the movie become relatable. They're not all, as you pointed out, just ditzy or incapable. These you hear that, Rob Zombie? <laughs> the, these females, they they're capable uh, for the most part. Jamie Lee Curtis is not a, a helpless victim. Um, Annie has some substance to her, and most of their conversation feels really natural. Agreed, John. Hidden gem. Well, interestingly enough, uh, I actually. But I, I stuck with the cast, and I was uh, I was going with Will Sandon because, you know, really he didn't go on to have an acting career. But yes, that simple look he had when they take the mask off and zoom out, and as the parents step back, I, I just thought I was like, you know what, for a kid like that to nail something like that, that took a lot. I'd- my hidden gem, I'm going to go with, uh, actually, I, somebody had kind of got caught in the in the gray area between supporting actor and hidden gem. I just want to give a nod to uh, Charles uh, Cyphers, who played Sheriff Lee Brackett. I, I did like him a good bit, I, and um, he he makes uh, he makes a lot of good moments in the movie. But uh, my hidden gem, I'm going to give to a, a very small role, uh, 
Arthur Millay, the graveyard keeper, uh, who actually is walking Loomis out to the graveyard, and you know, it's like, ah, dumb kids, uh, always stealing <laughs> these grave headstones. To which I wonder, who are these teenagers in this town? <laughs> How often does this happen? <laughs> yeah, he makes it seem so normal. <laughs> I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. He's not in a lot of other movies, but uh, he was just so eccentric, which a graveyard keeper ought to be a little bit eccentric. And so. Well, and, and you can tell he just keeps going, even though Loomis, you could clearly tell, is like, just shut up. Like, <laughs> you know, Loomis is just like, just show me the dang gravesite. Like, well, you know, when I went back and watched it this time, for some reason I forgot about the headstone thing, and they looked at the hole in the ground. I was like, are they implying that this is a grave? It's very, very small. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized they zoomed out. I was like, oh, that's right, it's a headstone. <laughs> I thought there was like, the miniature grass on this looks terrible. <laughs> that grave's about three inches deep. Is this a grave for ants? <laughs> uh, best shot of the movie, Chad. Uh, for me, the, there's really two. The closet scene with Laurie and Michael, it's very claustrophobic. Uh, the lighting changes. He turns on and off the light bulb. Uh, he's just trying to get into the closet. It's, it's very intense, and there is practically no dialogue there. And it's just wonderfully shot. Uh, the other one for me, though, is her trying to get back into the Doyle's house. She's banging on the door for Tommy and Lindsay to come downstairs. They're asleep. And you see Michael just slowly approaching. And you see the camera pan with her as she comes onto the porch, too. Absolutely. So there's a sense of movement, like you're watching this yourself. Yeah, and the tension there is just palpable. Uh, you see him slowly doing that killer walk, and she's just pleading for help. And you're like, someone please answer the door this time. I don't suggest anybody be a serial killer, but uh, if uh, you choose to take it up, I mean, walking slowly towards your victim is far more terrifying than like running after them, so... Take the slow approach. It's like the Heinz 57 of murder. Just kill your victim slowly. I mean, again, serial killing, bad thing. Just Retro Movie Roundtable does not endorse serial killing. But if you do it, do it slowly. <laughs> John. Um, this might seem like a little bit of a cop-out, but I, I got to go with the opening scene. Um, I just think that the fade-in from the credits, how that was done, and then just this interesting camera like point of view shot just really and then winding out as i kind of mentioned with you know us being unmasking and you can just see picking up the clown mask and the knife and it, it, you you get this point of view from the perspective of evil and you can't understand it and that's kind of the point i was convinced like, that was one continuous shot but apparently it's three yeah uh, three shots but yeah that is it's convincing enough to me to count it as one, so I'm with you, John. Yeah, that that uh, that that definitely uh, is a great one. So, uh, uh, and then just for just to be uh, diverse, I'm gonna pick this one. Another one where Michael is about to come out at Lori and stab her. Uh, he's in a dark uh, part of the house, and then they they fade up the blue lights on his face, um, and so you see this face kind of emerge, and then you get a then you understand where his position is and she's facing away from him. And so again, uh, another example of how you're just like so much tension, so much tension, like, oh, turn around. It's right after the line, you can't kill the boogeyman. Just wonderful foreshadowing by Tommy Doyle. He's right. Yeah. He's a very insightful kid. <laughs> Tommy, I like that kid. Lindsay, not so much. You just like him because he was Paul Rudd later on. <laughs> um, best scene, Chad. 
I think it's the scene with Annie in the, the laundry room slash like outdoor shed type mm-hmm. area where Michael was bouncing from window to window. Uh, he never actually acts on that, but just... He's thinking about it. Yeah. You see his face behind her, and then she turns to talk to Lindsay. Uh, she's trying to get out the locked door, and he's just circling the shed, circling his victim, almost playing with her. Yeah, and that's a great one. This is a good shot, too, of him, like another mentionable shot of how the the door closes, and then and through the sheer window, uh, you kind of like the sheer window covering, you see his face. Uh, all of a sudden there so very alarming john best scene well interestingly enough i I chose for the shot shot the beginning and uh i I have to go with the end here and part of it is i'm glad we mentioned it before i like that donald pleasance gave the suggestion that loomis isn't surprised uh I, i think that that was just a great because honestly that would be my first instinct as well as to oh he should be surprised that he got up like oh my gosh but He's not, and it's such a better idea, and it opens us up to de- definitely not just sequels or anything, but a better idea of Loomis's character and uh, as a great protagonist. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, best scene, I'm going to pick uh, one of Chad's mentionables uh, for shot. Uh, I'm going to go with the closet scene as uh, Michael struggles to get into the closet uh, he breaks through the louvers. Uh, he, you know, Lori is huddled in a corner, and it's a you know really terrifying moment. She grabs a hanger resourcefully, stabs him in the eye with it, uh, which is a reason not to use plastic uh, hangers. So, uh, you know, think about that. Uh, Michael drops his knife. Lori picks up the knife, gives him a good stab. That's uh, that's definitely my favorite scene there too. It's, it, it, for me, it's the climax of the movie. And uh, I didn't mention this before, but I just thought when they wrote this, they actually came up with the kill scenes first. So it's a little bit like a James Bond movie where they come up with the stunts. So they thought of all the things that they wanted to do in the movie, and then they tied them together with a plot, which is kind of surprising when you think about it. Because it all goes together so well. You would think that would be a weird way to write a movie. but Yeah, um, for slashers, those kill scenes are really important. Like Bob's being pinned against the wall. That's a cool kill. That is a good kill. Yeah, absolutely. Best quote, Chad. I think I'm going to steal everyone's. Maybe maybe someone will surprise me here, but uh, I've got to quote Dr. Sam Loomis. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left, no reason, no conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked in. So I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Oh, man. Nailed it. John, how about you? Actually, I'm going with a little exchange here. It's just uh, when Laurie says, uh, was that the boogeyman? And Loomis replies, as a matter of fact, it was. That's a wonderful line. I've got another one uh, that I, 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 I'm going to get, Chad, Chad took mine, and so I'm just going to, for diversity's sake, give a nod to uh, Bracket Startles Lori at one point, and he goes, it's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I figured we all might go with the, that first one, so, but Russell, that was the other one I was considering having as my backup, so I'm glad you mentioned it. It's more of a tip of the hat. Chad, Chad's was uh, too good. Yes. Yeah, so uh, change one thing. I think for me, uh, 
So, Russell, you talked about this scene originally with Michael Myers behind her appearing. What follows after that? He misses a Laurie Strode that has her back turned to him. And it's kind of clumsy. And it's just an obvious miss. It's kind of goofy. He gets her arm. He does get her arm. But there's no reason to stab her arm in that situation. He had a clean shot. So you want her to move suddenly to pull her away from it? Yeah, I want something distracting like a toy fall or whatever. Uh, even one of the kids saying, look out, just to make more sense. Okay. Uh, it's the only time Michael Myers seemed incompetent. Okay. He'll seem more incompetent later. Uh. <laughs> John, uh, change one thing. Well, honestly, there isn't a whole lot I could think of changing. But the only thing I could think of that when I watched it, I'm just... I'm pretty good at having willing suspension of disbelief, but when she literally falls down like the stairs, like over the banister, down the entire things, I was like, maybe they ought to made her fall differently or not be as readily to get up. I was like, that would hurt a lot. It would, but your <laughs> adrenaline, man. I mean, I true, but what? I mean, broken bones. I'd I get mean, up on I'm... a broken leg and run away from that guy. <laughs> I'm I'm on board with everything that happened. She also smashes through a broken, uh, like she breaks a, a glass French door with her hand, yeah. like to get out of a, like a rake propped up against it, and like again, these are not things that sound fun. You're like, if you told yourself like, yeah, break that glass window with your hand, you'd be, like, eh, and you'd hesitate before you hit, and you wouldn't actually do it, but. Uh, you know, if you got Michael Myers coming to murder you, again, murder your victim slow with serial killers. It's way scarier. Yeah. But, but if well, Michael Myers is walking your way, I'd bust through the glass with my hand, too. <laughs> well, I think that's a statement to really, at least in my mind, how little there is to change in this movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so my change one thing is I thought Bob's glasses on the ghost was a little too playful. And uh, they they really they really leaned into that one. So um, I mean I don't know I, my my moment of disbelief was just like your boyfriend's like a foot taller and has like giant like fully grown man like shoulders and like he's a very big strong man all of a sudden and he's I don't know it's just don't do the glasses sheet thing just just I think it's actually scary if he just comes through the door and although you'd lose the funny line of like see anything you like. Yeah, and that line, uh, so PJ Souls was at a screening, and during that line when it came up, a guy shouted out in the theater, heck yeah, I do, and she was sitting right behind him, and she was actually flattered by the comment. I was going to say, that would make me feel good, I don't know. I'm a dude, so maybe I don't get that, but uh, yeah. I realize now that I forgot to do the recast. Uh, Going back a few, uh, Chad, recast. So everyone did a very, very good job here. Uh, I may consider casting, if we're doing time appropriate, uh, Jane Seymour uh, in the role of Annie. She was actually closer in age to a teenager than Nancy was. Um, I'm always in favor of using Jane Seymour. Yeah, me too. Uh, She's a foxy lady. If we're talking modern day, though, I know we've been ragging on him all night, but Danielle Harris, uh, who was in the... uh, newest version of Halloween, Rob Zombies. Uh, she actually was in Halloween 4 as well. She did an excellent job as Annie, so she was wonderful. Okay. John, do a recast for us. Well, actually, I, I'm, I'm kind of stealing this one from uh, reality, uh, because at least according to PJ Souls, is that uh, th- her then-husband, Dennis Quaid, was in line to possibly play Bob Sims. And it had a scheduling conflict. But uh, Dennis Quaid could have made that role a lot more memorable. You took it right from me. I'm going to go after Bob. I don't know. Uh, what about Bob? But I, uh, 
I just am not a fan of uh, this character. So uh, as John mentioned, it's John Michael Graham, and Bob is Linda's boyfriend. Again, the guy who ends up eventually putting his uh, ghost sheet over his head. Uh, in fairness, he gets a great kill scene. So, yeah. um, so good moment there. So, Chad, before we go, anything you want to plug? Yeah, I saw the movie Hellfest. It's got a terrible name. It just seems like it's going to be this try-hard movie. But you know what? It is a blast, and I really recommend everyone see it if you enjoy slasher films like Halloween. Uh, it takes place at a horror festival. That's a perfect setting for a serial killer to hunt down his victims. Everyone thinks it's part of the act. No one's really responding. It's really kind of a, a brilliant setting uh, without drawing too much attention to his actions. Uh, Bex Taylor-Klaus is in it. Uh, she plays Sin in Arrow briefly. She's also in MTV Scream as Audrey. Uh, she's a lot of fun. She plays kind of the same character. But you know what? The haunted house attractions, the kills, uh, just the overall setting and the ending, it's a wonderful time. Did Sarah like it? Yeah. Sarah did not see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, interestingly enough, my niece went and saw this movie and uh, did not give me nearly the rundown you did, but she said she liked it and recommended it. And I also know that she likes the Bye Bye Man. So I just kind of dismissed uh, so i'm glad you mentioned that well thanks for that plug let's let's conclude this by giving this a five star or sorry well ha, I've, <laughs> I, may have still, I may have showed my hand there a little bit just now <laughs> um would you uh, on a scale of one to five or zero to five i always say one to five why do i do that anyway five star scale chad oh this is without a doubt a five star movie for me it sets the template for what a slasher should be show the killer in the beginning his powers uh, you kind of go after the the dumb, distracted teenagers. It's just great from start to finish. Does uh, it hold up? Absolutely. Five stars. Great to this day. Uh, that's, that's a very fair assessment. John, how about you? Yeah, I. it, it takes a lot typically for me to get, give five stars, but uh, yes, this this has to have five stars. It, it is genre-defining, but it, even to me more than that is just especially in, you know, doing more research on it. It's like how much they did with so little and how much effort and heart and soul was put into this to make it what it was uh, is just fascinating to me. Uh, and I, I love hearing stories of something like that coming together just out of sheer will almost. Yeah. And it, yeah. And I believe it, it does hold up uh, even though IMDb and, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, audiences don't seem to it's it's over it's 89 percent. i mean that's pretty good uh one thing chad uh, you didn't mention this earlier i know you have a top 100 horror movies countdown which uh if you know me i love my countdowns i gotta know where is uh halloween on your top horror movies this is number three for me it is behind my favorite horror movie ever which is the original nightmare on elm street freddy's my guy um, and then Dawn of the Dead. I love Dawn of the Dead. Honestly, Halloween is the better put together movie, but it's just how those movies affected me. That's fair. And it's your personal countdown. That's, that's, that's what it's important to remember. Um, I'm also going to give this a five stars. I think I've been gushing about this all night long. Uh, so it's no mystery. Uh, this one, it's really hard to actually scare people. 
And this movie scares me at a rate of much greater than once every 10 minutes. It holds me on the edge of my seat for the entire ride. Uh, there are bits of humor in there that are intentional that uh, help only to pull you out of the mood to just set you back up and to put you right back on the edge again. Uh, it's masterfully made. I love it. It 100% holds up now. If I think there's a lot of really great horror movies that are starting to come out again in the last five years or so, maybe 10 years now. Uh, but we've re-entered another glory era for horror movies. But I think this this is kind of the uh, late era, like late age for the first golden age of horror movies. And this is an absolute crown jewel for it. And uh, as I mentioned, I like my countdowns too. I have a top 100 horror movies and uh, this is at my number four. Uh, so... I have it one lower than Chad. Uh, I'll save uh, what the other ones are for the future episodes, maybe, but uh, that's just a tease. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Chad. Uh, John, are you ready to uh, pick a movie for next time? I am. You know, we pride ourselves in doing a lot of different kinds of movies, but uh, not this time. We're going to lean into it. It's October. It's time to, it's time to soil our pants and to... Uh, scare ourselves again. What, what are we going to do it with this time? Option one, The Mist from 2007. A freak storm unleashes a, uh, a species of bloodthirsty creatures on a small town where a small band of citizens hole up in a supermarket to fight for their lives. Option two, The Blair Witch Project from 1999. Three students vanish after traveling into a Maryland forest and to film a documentary on the local Blair Witch legend leaving only their found footage behind. Option three, Reanimator from 1985. A dedicated student at a, medic, or at a yeah, medical college and his girlfriend become involved in a bizarre set of experiments centering around the reanimation of dead tissue when an odd student arrives on campus. John, Chad, Ooh, uh... why don't you talk this one out together here? I've actually seen two of the three of these very recently. Just saw Reanimator for the first time. That was a... That was a lot of fun. Owen recommended it to me. Blair Witch is still, yeah, it's Blair Witch. <laughs> John, what are your thoughts? Well, well, I've I've seen all of them, uh, and I haven't seen any of them for a while, and that so that, ooh, that's interesting. But I, I think I'd kind of like to take it a little different feel than this. So I I think we got to try the mist on this one. I like it. We went old before. We'll go new this time. So uh, 2007. Uh, Still within our 10-year uh, rule, and uh, next time we will go into The Mist. Um, not The Fog by John Carpenter, but The Mist. Um, so, John, I mean, uh, Chad, thank you so much for yeah. joining us. We really enjoyed having you here. Uh, I think you uh, held up your end of the bargain for being a uh, thoroughly uh, fan of horror movies. Um, he wore this darn spoiler t-shirt again, and I'm trying my hardest to not look <laughs> at him. It, it has all these uh, endings of movies. Is Halloween on there? It is not. The Thank villages. You. Michael Myers gets up and walks away. Should not be on your shirt. I'm glad it's not. So, And uh, I didn't mention this along the way, but if anybody enjoys this so much, actually Halloween 2 is a pretty decent sequel, and it picks up immediately where this movie left off. And so uh, check that one out too. And you could stop, and you could stop after that. Oh, well, I and love it, three. <laughs> it's a different movie, but it's great. It is. Uh, Carpenter had an idea of an anthology, but also for you know anyone who plans on seeing the new 2018 film Halloween, uh, I from what I understand, it takes place. Do not 
listen to anything after the first movie. That's they right. Act it, like it, two, and the rest of them don't exist. It retcons everything else. Can't wait for it. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so, so much. John, thanks as always for joining me. Chad as well. Uh, we'll certainly have you back on again anytime you would like. And uh, reminder to everybody out there, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Reach out to us on Retro Movie Roundtable at yahoo.com. We love to hear from you, and uh, we love to engage with you. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other, and watch more movies. John? Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Do you want to reach out to your favorite podcast, Retro Movie Roundtable? Yeah! Well, now you can. Simply go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. Wow, I didn't know it was so easy. It took me less than 60 seconds. That's right. It's easy. Also, you can follow along and interact with the growing Retro Movie Roundtable community by liking Retro Movie Roundtable on Facebook. Facebook? Wow! Even my parents can use Facebook! <laughs> That's right, Timmy. And if you want to write in to John and Russell, you can also write them at an email at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. I never knew it was so easy to reach out to Retro Movie Roundtable! It is easy, and it helps the podcast gain viewers and grow their community of movie lovers. So... Remember, reach out to Retro Movie Roundtable and let them know what you think of them. 